0: Public Post Series Episode 10 The Reign of Cleopatra This episode is a continuation on the life of Cleopatra in Death of the Roman Public Series focusing on notable women during the fall of the Roman Republic. If you're just starting the series here, I really recommend listening to the previous episode, Cleopatra, Queen of Egypt. Also, as a content warning, suicide is a very prevalent theme and is discussed in some depth at the end of the episode. And as stated in previous episodes, I'm never trying to glorify suicide, but in this episode, I do seek to illustrate why two historical figures took their lives. If you feel as though you may want to skip that certain part, avoid... Minute 57 to 58 minutes and 30 seconds for the death of Antony and for the death of Cleopatra, avoid 1 hour, 1 minute, 25 seconds to 1 hour, 2 minutes, 20 seconds. And included in the show notes is the U.S. National Suicide Prevention Hotline. As a short summary, where we left her, Cleopatra violently ascended to her family's throne and was the first woman in her family's history to effectively rule in her own right. Cleopatra's rise to power was inexorably tied to Julius Caesar, who she made an alliance with. Hey, so listen, I was thinking that it might be a good idea if you and I formed an alliance. I think an alliance might be a good idea, you know, help each other out. Do you want to form an alliance with me? Absolutely, I do. Good. Good. Excellent. Okay. Julius Caesar needed her as a stable ruler, whose resources he had access to, to stabilize the fracturing Roman Republic. Cleopatra needed Caesar to back her as the sole ruler of Egypt. It was a mutually prosperous relationship, and the two were lovers who had a child, Ptolemy Caesarian. Cleopatra's wit, ambition, and ruthlessness, along with her alliance with Julius Caesar, cemented her as the Queen of Egypt. He gave her four legions of Roman soldiers, led by an officer named Rufio, who were stationed in Alexandria and served Cleopatra. They brought her a sense of security against internal and external threats, and when Julius Caesar was assassinated on the Ides of March 44 BCE, That sense of security went up in smoke. Cleopatra was 25 when Caesar was killed and was actually in Rome when it happened. As Caesar was soon departing for campaigns in Parthia to the east, Cleopatra was there to ensure Egyptian grain would supply the conquering Roman army. While most Roman politicians, especially the allies of Julius Caesar like Mark Antony, would immediately hide and scatter, terrified that they would be purged, We're all gonna die! Cleopatra did not. Despite being Caesar's lover, the Egyptian queen did not imagine she would be harmed in this Roman power struggle. And she was correct. The assassins, directed by Brutus, very specifically targeted Caesar and would not harm his allies like Mark Antony or Lepidus. Not that Antony or Lepidus knew that at the time. To quote from Adrian Goldsworthy's Antony and Cleopatra, describing her reaction to Caesar's assassination, No doubt she was stunned, probably grief-stricken, and certainly nervous. But she was in no real danger unless Rome descended into total anarchy. Politically, she was irrelevant, and she may have already known enough about Roman public life to realize this, and that the conspirators would have no reason to think her worth the trouble of killing. Whatever new regime emerged following the death of the dictator, it would be formed by Romans. The queen could not play a part in this process and could only hope for an accommodation with the leaders who emerged. She had lost her political protector and lover. It was impossible to know how Rufio and his legions would react to the news of Caesar's death and whether she would be able to cling on to power without her Roman backer. Cleopatra did not flee from Rome as soon as she heard of the assassination, fearing for her own life or that of her child. She remained there for several weeks, watching events. So, as the Roman Republic once again circled civil war, Cleopatra would be watching closely. She was most secure when she was supported by Rome. Her last ally Caesar got killed, so Cleopatra would have to find the new power in Rome to ensure her security. Many politicians of various ideologies held some kind of influence and power, such as the assassins like Brutus, Cassius, and Decimus Brutus, more moderates like Cicero, and Caesarians like Mark Antony and Lepidus. And soon to hit the political scene was Caesar's teenage great-nephew, who he had posthumously adopted in his will, and who received the bulk of Caesar's estate, Octavian. <laughs> Now for this next part, I talk more in-depth about it in Death of the Roman Republic chapter 15. Chaos is a ladder. And it's frankly one of my favorite episodes, but I'm really going to condense this down into some highlights that would have mattered to Cleopatra. Beginning, middle, end. Facts. Details. Condense. Plot. Tell it. Over the coming months, Antony and other Caesarians turned the Roman populace against Caesar's assassins, and Brutus and Cassius would flee to the east and raise armies that would eventually fight in civil war. This puts Brutus and Cassius in Cleopatra's neighborhood. Meanwhile, Caesarians like Antony were not a united front and would have their own mini-civil war in the Republic's west, with the young Octavian and two other generals endorsed by the likes of Cicero defeating Antony in battle. But soon after, in 43 BCE, Antony, Octavian, and Lepidus formed the Second Triumvirate. They essentially gave themselves dictatorial powers, which was enforced by their massive combined armies. They consolidated power by prescribing many politicians who would stand against them, like Cicero. Thus, the Roman populace accepted the new regime, whose prescriptions hung over the neck of anyone who tried to challenge them. Fear is a tool. And speaking of killing, by the end of 44 BCE, Cleopatra's brother and husband, the XIV, was dead at 15 years old. While it's possible he died of an illness as people were wont to do in the ancient world, it's also very possible Cleopatra killed him, given that, with Caesar, her staunch ally dead, Daddy's no longer around, but danger still is. Ptolemy was becoming older, more independent, and possibly more influenced by rivals in the Alexandrian court. She eliminated him before he could become a problem. I got one less- Cleopatra now co-ruled with her son Ptolemy Caesarian, who was about three years old, effectively allowing her to rule as sole monarch for the foreseeable future. Additionally, like her father did, she had representatives active in Rome who tried to appeal to politicians that they should back her rule in Egypt, but her real do-or-die decisions were about to occur. Remember, Cleopatra's goal was to form an alliance with the most powerful politician in Rome, as she had with Caesar. Given that there was about to be a civil war, it was crucial that she picked the winning side, which was a coin flip. None had yet emerged as a dominant Caesar-like figure, and as the triumvirate formed up a massive force in the west, Brutus and Cassius were similarly raising a massive force in Cleopatra's neighborhood. Thus, at the present, what Caesar's assassins were doing could have a very immediate impact on Cleopatra. Both the Triumvirate and Brutus and Cassius were trying to gather as many troops as possible for the upcoming civil war. Legions provided politicians like Cleopatra a sense of security. Cleopatra's four legions became something of a liability for her, as a Roman commander would eventually request their service. Indeed, one Dolabella, the governor of the province of Asia, requested Cleopatra release her legions to him. This was Cleopatra's first critical decision, release her Roman soldiers or not. Cleopatra ultimately would release him to Dolabella, but the soldiers chose not to join him and instead went to Cassius, the conspirator. The soldiers likely saw that Cassius had the superior force and that they would likely die if they served Dolabella. Cassius would besiege Dolabella in Asia and Dolabella would commit suicide. Cassius was now demanding money, grain, and warships from Cleopatra as he prepared for war against the Second Triumvirate. Cleopatra had another critical decision to make. While she had complied with Dolabella, she now chose to stall Cassius, saying she would give him what he needed to feed his war machine, but she did not have all the resources immediately available. Cleopatra certainly risked danger here. She had a small contingent of forces that could fend off internal Egyptian threats, but Cassius's massive Roman army would easily depose her. Fortunately for Cleopatra, and possibly something she anticipated, Cassius was too preoccupied in preparations and couldn't waste resources attacking Egypt. Cleopatra had also heard by now of the consolidation of the Second Triumvirate, who controlled the city of Rome, who were a Caesarian force, and would bring their own massive army to the east. Cleopatra did not openly endorse or appeal to the Triumvirate, but continued to promise Cassius she would send him resources soon. Cleopatra is walking a very fine line in her lies to Cassius. Yes. yes! Yes, balance. Yes, symmetry. Yes. Cassius, growing suspicious of Cleopatra, named her younger sister Arsinoe as Queen of Cyprus. Arsinoe was 24 years old and effectively a prisoner at the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. I don't think she ever actually left Ephesus, but by naming her Queen of Cyprus, Cassius seemed to signal to Cleopatra that she was replaceable as the monarch of Egypt. Fortunately for Cleopatra, while other eastern rulers and provinces would be punished by Cassius and Brutus for defying them, she essentially escaped punishment, possibly due to her distance from them, and possibly due to the fact that Egypt was not formally a client kingdom of Rome. When Cleopatra's warships were ready, she sent them sailing, but not to help Cassius and Brutus, but to help the second triumvirate. You tricked me. I you deceived know. you. Trick makes it sound like we have a playful relationship. Cleopatra sent not one coin, not one warship, not a single morsel of food, to Cassius, but now sent her fleet to fight him. Hoist the colors? Unfortunately for Cleopatra, Storms prevented her ships from actually joining up with the Triumvirs and battered her ships. She ordered new warships built, but she herself became ill, and by the time she was healthy enough to sail and had ships, the Battle of Philippi was over. The Triumvirate, led by Mark Antony, had won, and Brutus and Cassius had both committed suicide. As for Cleopatra's politics in Egypt, she was again short on funds, having invested all this money in unused warships, but she continued to donate money to the religious cults and orders who propagated her legitimacy. Additionally, as her father was styled as the new Dionysus, she styled herself as the new Isis. And it is at this point that one Mark Antony appeared in Cleopatra's life. Mark Antony didn't know it yet, but he had reached the high point of his career. He had gotten a leg up in politics as Caesar's loyal lieutenant. After Caesar's assassination, Antony used his position as sole consul to turn Rome as much to his favor as he could. After a scuffle with Octavian, a political unknown given a fortune by Caesar after he died, It ain't the way I want it! The two agreed to combine their strength in the Second Triumvirate, and at the Battle of Philippi, as the sickly Octavian ineffectively led his troops and then sadistically executed prisoners afterwards, Antony, who had graciously wrapped Brutus' body in his own general's cloak, was the truest victor. With Brutus and Cassius defeated, the Second Triumvirate now nominally held control of the whole Republic. Antony would govern the rich eastern half, while Octavian would govern the west, and Lepidus was relegated to governing Africa. Thus, Antony would be the politician in Cleopatra's neighborhood and was, coincidentally, the most powerful man in the Republic. Antony was eager to take on the job, having had some experience in the East. He would enjoy many feasts and parties and emulated the Hellenic lifestyle in the region. Antony didn't have an easy job ruling the eastern half of the Republic. The region had been ravaged by decades of war, including Pompey conquering it, then Pompey demanded troops and treasure so he could fight Caesar, and now Brutus and Cassius had demanded troops and treasure to fight Antony. You think you could steal from us and just walk away? Yeah. Antony was also aspiring to complete Caesar's invasion of Parthia, which would add to his personal glory, but require the cooperation and resources of eastern provinces and client kings allied to Rome. Antony continued to squeeze the eastern provinces, asking for nine years' worth of taxes in a two-year span. I want you to squeeze, and squeeze, and SQUEEZE! And while Antony was bleeding the East dry, the Second Triumvirate legitimately needed this money. They had promised their soldiers, A BAD AMOUNT OF MONEY who would be liable to start a rebellion if they weren't paid soon. Thus, the money was once again necessary to stabilize a fractured republic. Antony did offer some leniency to some communities, especially those that had resisted and were punished by Brutus and Cassius. A little fight you. I like that. In terms of Antony's intentions with Egypt, he, like Caesar, looked at Egypt's resources for an invasion of Parthia, specifically the grain that Egypt could supply for the Long March. Additionally, he had visited Arsinoe in Ephesus. Even though Cleopatra had successfully gaslit, gate-kept boss Cassius, she still had made promises to him, so Antony was wary where her loyalties lied. Arsinoe could serve as a replacement, if necessary. Antony would finally meet Cleopatra in 41 BCE in Tarsus, where he summoned her. She was to be acknowledged, with Ptolemy Caesarion, as the monarchs of Egypt, which was to her favor. Cleopatra's political agenda was obvious. Antony was the most powerful man in the Republic. Just like Caesar, Cleopatra was highly incentivized to make an alliance with him and prove herself indispensable as the unchallenged monarch of Egypt. Antony could offer his backing and security in exchange for Cleopatra's grain and a stable, friendly Egyptian kingdom rather than a raucous, unstable neighbor that Antony would have to contend with. Cleopatra was fashionably late to arrive to Tarsus, quite literally. She was now 28 years old and was much more experienced as a monarch and a more confident position meeting Antony than when she had first met Caesar. When she did arrive, she was not in a laundry bag but a luxurious pleasure boat dressed as the goddesses Aphrodite and Isis. The crowds were impressed at her approach, but she wanted to impress Antony most of all with her wealth, prestige, and cachet. She has a certain, how you say, Jojo Siwa? Antony was certainly impressed and asked to have dinner with her. Cleopatra denied him and instead would treat him to a feast of Ptolemaic proportions. Who knows what they would have talked about? Did you color your hair for this? I was We're in the same say, boat like, tonight, Mama. I just dyed my hair yesterday. No, you look so major. And when I, was I like... saw you on the carpet, I was like, Oh sleigh. I Stop. swear! I swear! Oh sl- big sleigh. Wait, like big sleigh? Yeah, big sleigh. You're Stop killing it, girl. It. I love your look. You look amazing. Thank you. After this, Antony very quickly confirmed Cleopatra's rule over Egypt, abandoning any idea of deposing her for Arsinoe. He was convinced that trying to install Arsinoe would create too many variables, especially since Cleopatra had demonstrated herself as an alluring ally. Demonstrate your value. While Antony was married to Fulvia, wives rarely got in the way of a Roman politician's affairs. Cleopatra and Antony had quickly formed a sexual relationship. Cleopatra seduced Antony. Oh. Happy horse to bear the weight of Antony. And Antony seduced Cleopatra. Step one, we buy into this club. Step two, we roll over to the club, either in your Mercedes Benz, which is gorgeous, or my pre-owned Acura Legend, which is all right. Step three, I dagger you on the dance floor. Just bounce, 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 now everybody's watching <laughs> Antony would spend the winter of 41 BCE with Cleopatra in Alexandria. Alexandria was a prestigious eastern city that Antony could justify his presence in as a base of operations, but Cleopatra herself was very enticing as well. She continued to host lavish feasts and parties while Antony was there. Such activities were expensive, but for Cleopatra, holding Antony's attention, infatuation, or love would make her secure. To further secure her rule, she convinced Antony to kill her sister Arsinoe. You're a very fair maiden for for such activities. Who was still a prisoner at the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. I support women's rights, but more importantly, I support women's wrongs. And if you're keeping score at home, Cleopatra had four siblings and she probably killed three of them. I don't believe in the glorification of murder. I do believe in the empowerment of women. To quote from Adrian Goldsworthy about their activities at this time, everything was on an extravagant scale. Plutarch's grandfather used to repeat a story told by a friend who had been studying medicine in Alexandria at the time and had become friendly with one of the royal cooks. Amazed by the sheer quantity of food being cooked one evening, he was surprised to be told that the company was very small. Multiples of everything were prepared to be ready at different times so that Antony could be served almost instantly whenever he demanded the next course. Presumably, the staff were happy to dispose of the unused food. In recent years, Egypt had suffered from poor harvests and outbreaks of famine, yet the much-paraded opulence of the Ptolemaic court never faltered. The extravagance was deliberate and emphasized, not simply in the food, but also in the decoration of the palaces and even the tableware. In the first feast at Tarsus, Cleopatra had used golden and jeweled tableware and covered the room in rich tapestries. All of this was given away to the guests, and the richest luxuries were given to Antony. On the next night, everything was even more lavish and expensive, and once again, it was given away. Cleopatra provided Ethiopian slaves bearing torches to escort them and their goods home. Luxury and excess were celebrated, and it is certain that the displays at her own court in Alexandria were on an even grander scale. It may have been around this time that Antony acquired a set of golden chamber pots. Sometimes the group would wander the streets of Alexandria at night with Antony and Cleopatra and presumably some of their followers dressed in the simple clothes of slaves. Antony would behave rattly, mocking passersby and even looking into houses while his lover is supposed to have watched. The disguises were unconvincing, but a lot of Alexandrians were happy to play along, replying to mockery with abuse of their own. A few were even willing to let Antony pick a fight with them, and more than once he is supposed to have returned with bruises from these adventures. There was a long tradition of such displays by aristocrats, and many Alexandrians were happy to indulge their queen and her Roman guests. They said that Antony only ever revealed the serious face of a tragic actor to his own countrymen, but with them showed the mask of a comic actor. From Antony's perspective, he was checking off all the boxes that Caesar was, emulating who he probably considered the greatest Roman of all time, and someday soon, he would be able to surpass him in power and prestige. Antony had won a civil war, gained dictatorial power, was chosen by the beautiful Cleopatra as her lover, just as she had chosen the powerful Caesar. I'm swimming in your wake. Antony would soon embark on a Great Parthian campaign. He also knew the pitfalls to avoid, like getting horse archered to death or getting stabbed 23 times. Write that down! Write that down! By the time Antony left Alexandria, Cleopatra would be pregnant. They would not see each other for three and a half years. While their political and personal relationship was off to a fantastic start, if you know history... You know this isn't gonna Now, a whole lot was going down in the Roman Republic at this point, which was covered in the main series episodes chapters 16 and 17, so I'll try to hit the highlights that would affect Cleopatra later on. Octavian was unsuccessfully fighting Sextus Pompey, the renegade son of Pompey Magnus, who was a thorn in his side. Antony had donated some ships to Octavian's naval battles in exchange for troops for his conquest of Parthia, yet Octavian stalled on sending them. Antony and Octavia would bump shoulders, by which I mean they would almost start a new civil war against each other, but they were able to reconcile and share up their alliance with a marriage between Antony and Octavian's sister Octavia, whom Antony would have two children with. Oh, and this was after Antony's wife, Fulvia, had died after raising rebellion against Octavian. Like I said, a lot was happening. As Antony was making final preparations for war in Parthia, he was picking a good time to invade. Parthia's old king abdicated his throne, so his son Frades IV was ruling. Frades would have his father and brothers killed so that they could not challenge him on the throne. It's like poetry, sort of if they rhyme. Antony would invade Parthia shortly after the new monarch's violent consolidation. If Parthia's internal institutions were disorganized and weakened, it would make Antony's invasion all the easier. Additionally, Antony tried to shore up the Eastern Republic. Antony was going deep into enemy territory, and needed to make sure that eastern rulers and provinces behind him would be sending supplies his way. Antony would have a long march through the Parthian desert, and it would be disastrous if an eastern ruler was convinced by their Parthian neighbors to betray him. Antony forged more personal alliances with monarchs like Cleopatra, ensuring they were on good terms. Antony also gave these monarchs favors, putting them in his debt. He reduced the number of official Roman provinces that Roman governors would rule to three. For example, Cleopatra was given Crete and parts of Cilicia, Syria, and Cyrenaica. She now held as much territory as Ptolemy III did, her ancestor that had held the most territory. Cleopatra also desired Judea, but could never convince Antony to concede it to her. Judea was ruled by Herod, a man that Antony and Octavian had installed. Cleopatra would start styling herself as lover of her fatherland, which probably refers to Macedon, where her family was from. This was meant to call back to Alexander the Great's empire, given that Antony had just given Egypt a lot of its historic territory. In Antioch and Syria, coins were minted with her face on one side and Antony on the other clearly showing the inhabitants Cleopatra ruled with Rome. Like her father, Cleopatra served the needs of the Alexandrians first, as it would be easier for her home city to organize and depose her, rather than rural Egyptians. Once again, Antony was asking the Republic's east for a lot of financial and resource investment. I am once again asking for your financial support. Eastern rulers like Cleopatra traditionally taxed their inhabitants, made themselves rich, and that's just how the world worked. But with Rome domineering over all of them, the Romans had to be included in the equation and cut in on the royal profits. Otherwise, the Romans would replace them as monarch with someone more willing to pay up. Troll, toe, What'd you say? Troll, toe, Hey, hey, hey! Troll, toll! Here's your toll, troll. While personally, Cleopatra was a dear friend and lover to Antony, politically, she was still expected to kick some points up to Rome. Adrian Goldsworthy argues that Cleopatra was in a more precarious position here than most people realize. She still relied on Roman support to remain in power, and there was no imaginable situation in the future where this dependence would end. Continued Roman backing was less certain, although for the moment, Antony's goodwill and generosity were secure. Yet his needs and inclinations might change in the future, nor was it certain how long he would remain in the East and whether his power would endure or decline. Cleopatra had to keep on proving her loyalty and effectiveness as an ally and personally hold on to Antony's affection. It may well be that the love was also genuine on her side, but even if it was not, she simply could not afford to lose his interest. But it was all gonna be worth it, and Antony's victory would thus be Cleopatra's victory. The invasion of Parthia was politically justified in that Antony was going to avenge Crassus, who the Parthians had obliterated decades ago. i vengeance. More motivating, Antony and the Romans were going to plunder Parthia. In Antioch, he met up with Cleopatra again and met their twins, Alexander Helios and Cleopatra Selene. By the time Antony left Antioch, she was pregnant again. It's impossible to accurately say how many soldiers Antony controlled, since ancient sources love to exaggerate, but Plutarch claimed Antony had a force of 100,000 soldiers. Additionally, a subordinate had very recently been very successful, repelling Parthian raids into Roman territory. All the signs were pointing to success. Antony had Cleopatra at his rear to back him, and he would drive a spear into Parthia that would put Antony on the same level as Julius Caesar, Pompey Magnus, and possibly Alexander the Great. This is the happiest day of my life! Antony's invasion of Parthia was a slow-motion disaster, unsuccessfully sieging a city, constantly dealing with horse archer raids that refused to fight a conventional battle, and getting his baggage train that fed his army destroyed. Which is not good. Realizing that he couldn't win, Antony force marched his army for a month straight, trying to make it to friendly territory before winter hit, and was still harassed by the quick Parthian horse archers fighting on their home turf. My desert. my June? On that march back, after a mutiny one night, Antony contemplated suicide. When all was said and done, Antony had achieved nothing, lost 25,000 to 33,000 soldiers, and his failure made him look like a fool, very badly damaging his reputation and prestige. No! Oh! This is not how this was supposed to go! Ah! Oh! Additionally, all the resources that Cleopatra and other rulers had invested in him went up in smoke. Oh my god. I am never gonna financially recover from this. Once he arrived in Syria, he didn't summon any Roman allies or family, but Cleopatra. He asked that she bring money and clothing for his survivors, which was still a massive force. Their reunion occurred quietly and without fanfare. Cleopatra could provide clothing for them, but couldn't provide the coin. Antony, still a rich man, paid his soldiers out of his own pocket and said Cleopatra did it. He was exhausted, having traveled 2,000 miles in a year and led several thousand men to their deaths for nothing. I've made a huge mistake. In due time, Cleopatra would once again throw lavish feasts and parties for Antony, but he was consuming more alcohol than usual, possibly an alcoholic. While Antony had failed in Parthia, Octavian and his general Agrippa had succeeded in the western half of the Republic, finally besting Sextus Pompey. Additionally, Lepidus was further marginalized by Octavian and made politically irrelevant. In short, 36 BCE was a pivotal year, as the power dynamics of the Second Triumvirate had shifted severely based on the successes and failures of Antony and Octavian. But with Cleopatra by his side, Antony's dark mood seemed to lighten and they would sail to Alexandria. In 35 BCE, Antony's actual wife, Octavia, sailed to Athens, hoping to join him in the east. Antony ultimately declined to meet her, spurning his wife for a few reasons. Octavia brought with her money to help Antony, as well as the surviving warships he had lent Octavian. Yet Octavia did not bring all the troops her brother had promised Antony so long ago. If Antony accepted Octavia and her gifts, her brother Octavian would see his debt to him restored. Octavian likely did this on purpose, setting a trap for Antony. For more personal reasons, Cleopatra may have felt threatened by Octavia's presence. Octavia was, after all, Antony's legal wife, and like Cleopatra, was described as beautiful and intelligent, and had children with Antony. If the two reunited, and Antony started drifting towards Octavia and Roman influence, I've made a huge mistake. Cleopatra's position would be threatened. So, Cleopatra allegedly advised Antony to not see his wife. Antony told Octavia to give him the resources she brought, but to go to Rome. His frenemy Octavian did not immediately act upon this insult to his sister, but he wouldn't do time. You've made a huge mistake. Antony blamed King Artavasdes of Armenia for his failed invasion of Parthia. Antony stated things went awry because Artavasdes betrayed him and didn't adequately support him. While Antony couldn't muster 100,000 soldiers, the forces he did raise were able to invade Armenia and capture Artavazdes. Antony had a small victory that in no way outweighed his failure in Parthia. Still, Antony was happy to have any excuse to throw a party. In Alexandria, Antony held a parade, dressed as Dionysus, and rode in a carriage before a chained Ardivastes, leading him to Cleopatra, sitting on her throne. If you think this sounds a bit like a Roman triumph, you're not the only one. Antony soon caught flack for this ceremony in Rome, saying that he was perverting the Roman triumph, holding it in a foreign city, celebrating foreign gods, with a foreign queen. It may sound similar to a triumph, but it's actually unlikely apparently that Antony wanted the ceremony to emulate a triumph as it was for a more Hellenized audience being the Alexandrians, and it's all further muddled by the fact that the Roman triumph is similar in origin to ceremonies to Dionysus, but Antony would also be criticized for his infamous donations of Alexandria which would greatly empower Cleopatra and show the trust that Antony put in his lover as a politician. This was another grand ceremony in which Antony named Cleopatra Queen of Kings whose sons are kings. Her son and co-ruler, Ptolemy Caesarion, was called King of Kings. Antony also publicly labeled Ptolemy Caesarion as Julius Caesar's son, although didn't make any kind of move to make him a Roman citizen. These titles were important because it asserted that Cleopatra had power over other kings. Additionally, Antony's three children by Cleopatra, Alexander Helios, Cleopatra Selene, and Ptolemy Philadelphus, were all given titles as well. Alexander Helios was named King of Armenia, Medea, and Parthia, and Cleopatra Selene was given Cyrenica and Libya to rule. Little Ptolemy was given the rest of Syria, Phoenicia, and Cilicia. These titles were at the moment definitely just titles, as Antony did not control Parthia, nor were these literal children capable of ruling. Nonetheless, Antony stating Roman provinces and allied client kingdoms were to be ruled by his children was a bold move. But Antony had no Roman politician in his territory to oppose him. Society is a lie. Anarchy, dude. Gamers are the government. The Historia Civilis YouTube channel has a really good analysis of this at the end of his video on Antony's invasion of Parthia, and Civilis argues that Antony's plan was fairly logical. The Roman East that Antony controlled was fairly new, as Pompey Magnus had only just conquered much of it in living memory. The region had not been under Rome's control for generations and was more prone to disruptions. Additionally, this region was used to being ruled by monarchs like the Ptolemies or the Seleucids. So, Antony would greatly empower Egypt, who he was on good terms with. Cleopatra being the queen of kings would oversee the region, and Antony trusted that she would remain a cooperative ally. And Cleopatra's co-ruler and successor was Ptolemy Caesarian, Julius Caesar's son, who was also expected to serve Rome's interests in the region since he was half-Roman. Even if Alexander Helios, Cleopatra Selene, and Ptolemy Philadelphus were only given titles now, perhaps in the future Antony expected them to become legitimate rulers of the lands they held titles in and be compliant to Rome. But Antony making a mockery of the Roman triumph and now making his children kings of Roman provinces did not sit well with his rival Octavian, or more likely, Octavian smelled blood in the water. Antony's failed Parthian invasion jeopardized his grip on power and public image. And then going on to make these PR blunders in Alexandria would make it easier for Octavian to justify Antony's potential elimination from Roman politics. Octavian himself was already mildly threatened by Antony's proclamation that Ptolemy Caesarion was Julius Caesar's son, as Octavian's political career was built on being Caesar's adopted son. If Ptolemy Caesarion was Caesar's biological son, Octavian had a brother and a rival, and as we've seen throughout these two episodes, Sybilicide is very much tied to Ptolemy Caesarian's family. In the meantime, Antony and Cleopatra continued to live large in Alexandria. Cleopatra was arguably in the strongest political position of her life, being entrusted as the key player in Antony's reorganization of the East, elevated above every other ruler in the region. But it was built on a rickety foundation, as Antony, the man she had tied herself to, still had badly damaged his political career. Because I've got cancer of the career? And in Rome, the heart of power, Antony's frenemy Octavian had become quite popular in recent years for his victories, in contrast to Antony. To both common Romans and politicians, Antony's failures and antics were making him unpopular. He and Cleopatra still had many friends and resources at their disposal, but in the eight years since the Battle of Philippi, Octavian had become significantly stronger, whereas Antony was wounded. Both Antony and Octavian were Roman politicians who had a natural penchant to compete, and both followed Caesar's example of violence as a means to gain power. They were essentially the only things standing in each other's way of dominating the entirety of Rome. Once allies, the two most powerful men in the Roman world began to turn on each other. This turn began as verbal battles. Octavian and Antony both tried to belittle each other's accomplishments, highlight each other's failures, and bring up dark stains in each other's pasts. We live in a society where honor it's a distant memory. They both had a lot they could criticize. Antony readily criticized Octavian's role in the prescriptions, describing the enthusiasm in which he signed away men to their deaths. He also criticized Octavian's obscure origins, Octavian's own family wasn't very important compared to Antony's aristocratic heritage. Octavian only got lucky that Caesar adopted him. Octavian wasn't even the true son of Caesar when Ptolemy Caesarian was. And of course, Antony attacked Octavian for not being the Roman ideal of a commander or even a man. Antony saw Octavian's behavior at Philippi. While Antony was beating Cassius, Octavian was sick and hiding from Brutus, letting his army get killed. Antony said that Octavian was frightened by Sextus Pompey, so he had to get Agrippa to beat him. Some guy with an undercut just called me soy boy? Octavian also stripped Lepidus of his power and stole his territory, and had never delivered those thousands of soldiers he promised Antony so long ago. How about I give you the finger, and you give me those soldiers? Which Octavian still never came close to delivering. (laughs) What, What? What, what are you talking about? What a poor leader of Rome, Octavian was. You're ugly, you're disgusting, I'm gonna kill you. Of course, Octavian had his own salvo to launch back at Antony and engage in the classic Roman tradition of Men at all costs don't respect women. Octavian characterized Antony as a drunk who had left his beautiful, dutiful Roman wife Octavia lusting after the foreign queen Cleopatra who was turning him into her pawn. Antony fired back that Octavian also had affairs with married women, and treated married women like slaves he could have his way with. And, of course, there was Octavian's actual marriage to Livia, in which he stole another man's wife. But to the Romans, Octavian was still a young man sowing his wild oats, and his affairs had all been with Roman women. Antony, on the other hand, was a seduced pawn, as his donations of Alexandria clearly exemplified. Antony proclaiming his Egyptian children were the rulers of Roman territory demonstrated he wasn't looking out for Rome's best interests but Cleopatra's. I hope this series has pointed out that basically all Roman politicians were morally bankrupt, and clearly both Antony and Octavian were corrupt and drunk on power. We both eradicate people to make the world a better place. Unfortunately for Antony, he had a few decades of debauchery more than Octavian that could be cited against him. While he didn't have the moral high ground, his goal was to drag Octavian down to his level, as at various points in their lives, they basically displayed the same cruelty. You break the rules and become a hero. I do it, I become the enemy. It doesn't seem fair. But even if Octavian was morally bankrupt, Octavian had been physically present in Italy and Rome for years and had a string of recent victories that rehabilitated his reputation, whereas Antony's had only fallen in recent years. Being in the heart of the Republic, Octavian could readily raise new propaganda, spread rumors, and influence public opinion, whereas Antony was across the Mediterranean not able to adapt as quickly, and was left reacting to, and playing defense against Octavian's propaganda. I do not need to dignify any of this with a response. I can speak for myself. All I know is that the rumor all the buzz about is unproven. Wait, what rumor? Thank you. This and all other rumors are unsubstantiated. Okay, the alcoholism, the sexual impropriety at work, the impending crash, The tension that the propaganda had ratcheted up had reached the point of no return. Things are now in motion that cannot be undone. Yet for all the mudslinging, the Roman populace was not eager for another civil war, so Antony and Octavian would have to try to provoke the other, and paint the other as the aggressor in some way that would justify their removal from power. One of Antony's allies, Munadius Plancus, turned on him and joined Octavian. Plancus told Octavian that Antony had drawn up a very interesting new will that was housed in the religious temple of Vesta. When Octavian learned of the will's contents, he said, Take me to church! Octavian illegally took out and read some choice passages of what Antony wanted to happen after he died. I think, um, I... I I think I owe it to my country to say. Antony wanted some of his wealth to go to his Egyptian children with Cleopatra, which was illegal since they weren't Roman citizens. But far worse, the will demonstrated a true change in Mark Antony's heart. When he died, even if he was in Rome, Antony wanted his body brought to Egypt to be interred with Cleopatra. He was no longer a true Roman, but a slave to his foreign queen. Octavian let the people's imaginations run wild as the will ignited Roman prejudice against the foreign queen. This is unacceptable. This is completely inappropriate. What would your family say if they knew you were here? They would be ashamed of you, and rightly so. You have always been a disappointment, but this is just... you have gone beyond the pale. The propaganda reasoned that if Antony held control of Rome, he was going to move the Republic's capital to Alexandria with Cleopatra, where they would rule the Republic as queen and king. You know what it is? I'll tell you what it is. It's anti-Italian discrimination. No Roman was eager for another civil war, so Octavian wasn't going to fight a civil war. Octavian was going to defeat the evil queen Cleopatra, who had spent years ingratiating herself to Antony and had turned a once-proud Roman into her thrall. Cleopatra would turn the republic into an Egyptian kingdom if she could, bringing all their backwards ways into the pristine republic. Roman legions weren't going to fight Antony's legions, but Cleopatra's eastern army. We're going to win this war. What war? The war on women! Women, man! There's a war on women? Can I get in on that? Bro, it's been raging since the beginning of time, bro. And we're losing ground. Octavian had far more supporters in the 1,000-man Senate, only 300 of whom would flee to Antony. The war of words was over. Octavian had successfully turned Rome and Italy against Antony, whose position with Cleopatra was indefensible. Both of them geared up for the final civil war of the Roman Republic. There ain't no squaring it. Not this time. This isn't some barroom, bro. It is big. This is blood for blood and part of gallons. This is the old days and the bad days, the all or nothing days. They're back. There's no choices left. And I'm ready for war. Antony, would let Octavian come to him and attack the East rather than him going to invade Italy, which would have been yet another PR disaster for him. Needless to say, Cleopatra would once again mobilize Egypt's resources and money for a Roman politician's interests. Of the 500 ships that comprise Antony's fleet, 200 would be Cleopatra's. In this upcoming roman civil war cleopatra would have much more skin in the game as octavian was very directly demonizing her in his propaganda if she wanted to maintain the throne she fought for her entire adult life antony had to win win yeah just win baby antony and cleopatra would go to greece to prepare their forces cleopatra remained close to his side as an emotional and political anchor for him but on the off chance that Antony and Octavian made up, because this certainly wasn't their first spate, Why don't you two get to the part where you admit your sexual feelings for one another? Whoa! You are, you are way oh. off If they could make up and reform their alliance, Cleopatra wanted to be right by Antony in their renegotiations so that she was not disposed of. Of course, Cleopatra remaining so close to Antony in this war didn't win him any neutral supporters and only reinforced the image that he was under the queen's control. Even Antony's own Roman subordinates didn't unanimously love her presence. Antony might not have realized how she continued to hurt his reputation among the Romans, or he didn't care. It was at this point that he formally divorced Octavia. Both sides needed time to gather strength, and each possessed an army of over 100,000 soldiers. Antony conscripted much of his army and pressured eastern rulers to back him instead of Octavian. Octavian would have to contend with a lack of funding to pay his army. He had to heavily tax his territories to mobilize his force in the first place, yet still didn't have the money to pay 100,000 soldiers when the war was over. If Octavian defeated Antony, and if he still didn't have the money to pay the gigantic army, his army might turn on him. Antony had slightly more soldiers than Octavian did, and had the advantage of playing defense like Pompey, Brutus, and Cassius before him. Antony took a risk and spread out his forces across the east so Octavian would have to fight anywhere he might try to land. By winter's end 31 BCE, Octavian finally made his attack. Now, while Antony would have had a decent chance of beating the sickly Octavian in a one on one, Octavian wasn't fighting alone. Nah, I'm with my Leading Octavian's ground forces was Antony's former ally, Statilius Taurus, who had decent military experience. And of course, Octavian's navy was led by his best friend and arguably Rome's greatest living general, Agrippa. Who had a history of victories on land and at sea? Agrippa was a stalwart and sturdy friend to Octavian for his entire life. I'm a, I'm a sturdy birdie. That's right. Say it three times before the cock crows, brother. Cock a doodle doo. Agrippa launched the attack sailing east and gained a foothold in Greece, where Stotilius Taurus started landing Octavian's ground forces. As Agrippa's navy attacked and weakened coastal communities, Octavian's army overran and captured these cities. Antony's strategy ultimately spread his armies too thin, some of which didn't even fight and fled, unable to defend against the onslaught. Antony conservatively didn't send more forces to try to repel Octavian's advance. Octavian and his forces would advance to the city of Actium, where Antony's forces were concentrated. Geography played an important role, as Octavian's forces were on a hill, which would have been tough for Antony to take. I have the high ground! Worse for Antony, his forces were stuck in low, watery ground, plagued by mosquitoes. Diseases like malaria and dysentery broke out in Antony's camp, debilitating soldiers and sailors, and even killing some. Some men, who were mostly recruits, started to desert Antony's army, wanting to escape with their lives, rather than wasting away waiting for battle. Summer came! and Antony made moves to cripple Octavian's forces. He built fortifications that would cut off Octavian's fresh water supply, but Octavian's forces repelled them. Worse for Antony, Agrippa kept up his aggressive naval campaign, destroying many of Antony's transport ships, making it harder for his army to get supplies. With a few more victories, Agrippa totally controlled the seas and totally cut off Antony from food shipments he needed from Egypt. Antony's forces went inland, demanding communities bring Antony's giant army food. Summer wore on, and Antony's position was not improving. He was blockaded by Agrippa at sea, and his army was decaying around him. While still formidable, the longer he stayed, the easier it would be for Octavian to defeat him. Antony's allies were changing sides on him. Some senators who had fled for Antony now joined Octavian, and eastern client kings started swearing allegiance to Octavian and brought their forces to him. Where Antony once commanded 500 mighty warships, He only had enough healthy sailors to man half of them. His position worsening, Antony would have one of his generals lead a land retreat of the main army, which further damaged his reputation. Roman commanders were supposed to lead their own retreats, but Antony passed it off to a subordinate. Well, I'm viewing it as the weakest move I've ever seen from a superstar, plain and simple. That's just how I look at it. Antony would form up his shrunken fleet and prepare them to battle Agrippa and Octavian. Many of the ships were Cleopatra's, including a crucial ship Cleopatra and Antony couldn't lose, the one that stowed her treasury. Antony's navy at this point was smaller than Octavian's 400-odd ships. Octavian's ships formed in a crescent, ready to engage and intercept Antony's ships that were going to fight their way out. Octavian commanded a few ships on the flank, but his Admiral Agrippa would orchestrate the battle. The day began with a lot of waiting. Agrippa waited for Antony to come to him, and Antony waited for the winds to pick up. Some of Cleopatra's ships were outfitted with sails, which were speedy, yet hard to control and not designed for battle, foreshadowing her goals. When the winds picked up, Antony's ships advanced. The wind's on our side, boys! And the battle began as Agrippa's ships started attacking them. In the nautical chaos that followed, Cleopatra's ship saw an open line through Agrippa's navy and was able to speed her way through it to Alexandria and safety. Antony watched Cleopatra and her treasury sail away and then left his flagship for a smaller ship. He too found an open line to escape and followed her home. What am I doing? I am blowing dodge. I'm getting out of town. Whatever you call it, I am running away from my responsibilities. arm well, feels good. About 70 other ships were able to escape with them. The rest fought on, failing to defeat Agrippa before retreating back to their harbor. Agrippa did not pursue Antony and starved out his trapped navy with his blockade. Eventually, they surrendered to him and Antony lost the majority of his navy. Not the navy! Antony's retreating army eventually ran out of supplies and had nowhere to go. Statilius Taurus caught up with them. While Antony's general remained loyal to him, his own officers started to negotiate with Octavian, and the whole army would be peacefully absorbed by Octavian. Well, that was a freebie. <sighs> Even without Octavian's propaganda, it's hard to see what Antony hoped to accomplish besides abandoning his army and navy for Cleopatra. If he had marched with the rest of his army, he could have retained their loyalty and perhaps even won a battle to turn his fortunes around. At Actium, he could have remained with his navy to have a better withdrawal, rather than leaving them to face Agrippa without a supreme commander. Now, only a fraction of his navy was loyal to him and thousands of men had died for his lost cause. Antony's apparent focus was getting Cleopatra and her interests out of Actium safely. Octavian's propaganda proved true after all. Oh, you're really not as smart as I thought you were. Antony's ship would catch up to Cleopatra's, and he joined her aboard. The mood was somber. I'm a bit sad. Actually, I'm lying. I'm quite devastated. Antony had lost, and therefore Cleopatra had lost. What would happen to them now? Octavian wouldn't immediately pursue them, and he lingered in the East, accepting the loyalty of Antony's old allies who were abandoning him. Octavian also had to quell civil unrest in Italy, as the populace was upset at the high taxes to pay for the war. Payday is postponed until next week, so this is my freestyle rap apology. Well, I'm a peanut bar, and I'm here to say, your checks will arrive on another day. Another day, another dime, another rhyme, another dollar. Another stuffed shirt with another white collar. Criminals, Wall Street taking the pie, and all the black man gets is a plate of white lies. Prisons recruiting them, police bees shooting them, rap artists looting them, labels all diluting them. Barack Obama, you scared of me, because I don't swallow knowledge, and I spit it for re Let me clear my throat. Ha, ha, ha. I don't know what that was, I don't. I don't know what that was. It was imperative that Octavian obtain funds to pay off all the soldiers under his charge, or this problem would become exponentially worse. When Antony and Cleopatra arrived in Alexandria, Cleopatra did not succumb to hopelessness and was quite active. She threw a celebration for their victory at Actium, confident that her subjects hadn't yet learned of the disaster. She executed several Alexandrian aristocrats before they might challenge her and seize their properties and wealth, since a lot of her wealth had been sunk with Antony. Treasure was also taken from the temples of Egypt. She started building a new fleet of ships that could deliver her and Antony to exile, and had ships hauled overland from the Nile River to be brought to Alexandria. Antony tried to rally four legions in the African provinces to his cause, which would have offered a small sense of security. When he learned they had declared for Octavian, he had to be restrained from killing himself. While Antony had experienced defeat before, this was a large-scale civil war. I imagine Antony reflected on the precedence of Pompey Magnus, Brutus, and Cassius all dead after losing their civil wars. Cleopatra maintained her activities and tried to liven Antony's spirits, throwing him a very splendid 53rd birthday party. I like us better when we're she had also recently celebrated a ceremony in which a 16-year-old Ptolemy Caesarion officially became an adult, a movement to shore up stability in the regime. But soon she sent Ptolemy Caesarion away to India, where the Ptolemies had loose connections, courtesy of Alexander the Great's conquests, and where she and Antony might be able to join him in exile. She and Antony had promoted him as Caesar's son, which, intentionally or not, challenged Octavian. Telame Cesarean was not safe. We gotta get you out of here. There were little glimmers of hope. Both of them had been in dire straits before. Antony had survived over 50 years through the late-stage Roman Republic, and Cleopatra had spent 39 years clawing and scraping her way to power and smartly ingratiating herself with powerful Roman politicians to cement her status and safety. A new fleet was being constructed, and they might be able to join Tulemi Caesarion. Or maybe Octavian would be lenient, and Alexander Helios, Cleopatra Selene, and Ptolemy Philadelphus could serve him as loyal client monarchs. Maybe they could keep fighting Octavian in Spain, where Roman armies traditionally struggled to subjugate the local population. No habla but for all of Cleopatra's rapid political maneuvering and hopes, the majority of the Mediterranean was against them. King Malichus of Nabataea would attack and burn the fleet Cleopatra was trying to construct. Oh my God, we're having a fire! Antony had given his kingdom to Cleopatra, which had upset King Malichus. Additionally, he wanted to show loyalty to his new overlord, Octavian. Demonstrate your value. Both Antony and Cleopatra independently wrote to Octavian, appealing for his clemency. Antony invokes their past friendship. I'm a mess without you. (laughs) I miss being with you. I miss being near you. I miss your laugh. (laughs) (laughs) I I miss your scent. Mr. Musk, when this all gets sorted out, I think you and me should get an apartment together. And said he would retire from politics. Oh no, I'm not brave enough for politics. Cleopatra ensured Octavian that she would remain a loyal ally to Rome, and that everything she did was in service of being an ally to Rome, which was technically true. Cleopatra's problem was that she was allied to the wrong Roman in this instance. Octavian made no promises to Antony or Cleopatra about their futures. Cleopatra did have a valuable bargaining chip, which was her treasury. Octavian wanted it to pay his thousands of soldiers and all of Antony's former soldiers he had recently absorbed. Cleopatra made it publicly aware her treasury was stored in her family's mausoleum, and it was prepared to burn to the ground at a moment's notice, rendering it useless to looters. In the summer of 30 BCE, nearly a year after the Battle of Actium, Octavian finally launched a two-pronged attack on Egypt. Antony mustered what forces he could, and while making an effort, he was beaten back to Alexandria. As Octavian's forces closed in on the city, at a final lavish feast, Antony spoke openly about wanting a heroic death and at the battle tomorrow, he would lead a suicidal charge upon Octavian's forces. The day of the battle, the troops defected, and Antony had no army to charge with. It's possible that Cleopatra had ordered these troops to not attack. On August 1st, 30 BCE, Cleopatra sealed herself in her mausoleum with her treasury so that no one could enter unless they climbed in the second story window. Historians Plutarch and Dio, both born a hundred years after this would have happened, wrote that Cleopatra would purposely deceive Antony. She instructed a servant to tell him that she was dead. Antony felt like he had nothing to live for, so went to join her in death. He stabbed himself in the stomach with a sword with the help of a slave. Antony didn't die, but would regain consciousness in agony, asking Alexandrians in the palace to help kill him, but they ran from him. Then, Antony heard that Cleopatra was alive, and ordered a man to carry him to her. The dying man was hoisted through the mausoleum's second story window, and he lay in Cleopatra's tomb. She wept for Antony, and was said to be scratching deeply at her own chest as he lay dying, but he asked her to be calm. After a last taste of wine, his apocryphal last words were, Roman, conquered valiantly by a Roman. Antony's suicide was based on a misunderstanding, and Cleopatra seemed to do it on purpose. She knew Antony's mental and emotional state better than anyone, and could have guessed how he would react to news of her death. She very likely felt guilt and grief, but now Antony was gone, and Cleopatra could negotiate without his influence and political baggage. Octavian would also publicly grieve for Antony, just as Caesar had done for Pompey. Whether he actually felt bad or not, he no longer had to make the decision of whether to kill Antony or to risk sparing him. Octavian entered Alexandria unchallenged and did not violently ransack the city. Octavian still needed to secure Cleopatra's treasury, which was still locked up with her in the mausoleum. Octavian sent two delegates to speak to Cleopatra through the sealed door of the mausoleum, yet she was refusing to leave. Then, while one delegate kept talking to her, the other and some slaves put up a ladder and snuck through the second story window. They surprised and overpowered Cleopatra and her female attendants and brought them back to the palace after a short struggle. The treasury was secure and Cleopatra was captured. Her health was in severe decline, described as losing the will to live, but also, the cut she inflicted upon herself as Antony died had become infected. She was allowed to attend Antony's funeral. While Romans were generally cremated, Antony was embalmed like Alexander the Great and the Ptolemies. Cleopatra perked up when Octavian asked to see her. When they met, Cleopatra was not the proud queen like she was when she first met Antony, but a more desperate one like when she first met Caesar. Different ancient historians have different subtleties in the details of their meeting. Cleopatra would have used all the charm she could and apparently promised her jewelry to Octavian's wife Livia and his sister Octavia. One source claims that she lay all the blame on Antony, which Octavian refuted. She may have invoked her love for Caesar, and possibly showed him love letters they had written each other, or she may have even tried to seduce the 32-year-old Octavian. They definitely discussed her and Egypt's wealth, which Octavian needed, but already possessed a good chunk of. Whatever her strategy, Cleopatra would once again try to convince the most powerful Roman in the world that as the rightful queen of Egypt, she was a valuable ally. But her charm won her no favor, and Octavian wasn't buying what she was selling. I know it's all over, just like you do. But somehow, they still think they have a chance. Maybe if I say the right thing. Maybe if I'm polite. If I cry, if I beg. And when I see the hope draining from their face, like it is from yours right now. This (laughs) does put a smile on my face. Octavian's propaganda proudly stated he was not seduced by the beautiful queen like Caesar and Antony were. Octavian wanted Cleopatra alive for his triumph, whereafter she could retire to a peaceful life in exile like her sister Arsinoe had, no longer an Egyptian queen as she had been for over half her life. We understand each other. It won't be cinematic. Essentially, Cleopatra had gotten nothing that she had wanted. After being paraded as a prisoner, she would have no power, nor were her children promised any monarchies. Octavian only promised her she would live, which he thought was enough. I'm a man of my word. (laughs) Cleopatra had no intention for such a life, to be a trophy in Octavian's triumph, to be anything less than the Queen of Egypt. Almost two weeks after Antony's death, on August 12th, 30 BCE, Cleopatra took her own life. She visited Antony's body one last time, had a final meal, and dressed in her most regal attire. She sent a letter to Octavian, confident that she would be dead by the time he received it. There are different tellings of her method of suicide, but the most famous, if inaccurate, is the bite of an asp on her breast. The snake's venom killed her before Octavian's men could revive her. While Octavian ostensibly wanted her alive and was furious at her death, perhaps a dead Cleopatra was best for him. Alive, she still had some potential to disrupt his machinations. Cleopatra was interred next to Antony, and the lovers could now rest together forever. The Ptolemaic dynasty that had ruled Egypt for almost 300 years died with Cleopatra. Octavian now took personal control of Egypt, essentially making it his own province. Romans had long feared that any politician who controlled Egypt for any length of time would become obscenely wealthy and powerful, reaping Egypt's wealth. But with no Antony, there were no politicians who could challenge Octavian's rule. In the short term, Egypt's wealth finally ended Octavian's financial issues and paying his massive army. Long term, Egypt's wealth made Augustus a very rich man. Egypt would be controlled by the Romans, then the Eastern Romans or Byzantines, up until the 700s CE. Cleopatra's eldest son Ptolemy Caesarion did not long survive. The boy's tutor who was traveling with him gave him up to Octavian. Octavian had Caesar's son assassinated, eliminating him as a rival to Julius Caesar's name. Octavian would take some trophies with him from Alexandria to Rome, two of which being ancient obelisks that were used as sundials in Rome. For propaganda purposes, these ancient obelisks being taken as trophies from Egypt and placed in Rome were a testament to Rome's dominance and majesty over Egypt. Oh, oh, oh. oh. oh, oh. oh shadow! Oh... oh. Additionally, Octavian took back Antony and Cleopatra's children, Alexander Helios and Cleopatra Selene, who were about 10 years old, and Ptolemy Philadelphus, who was about 6. The children were paraded in chains in Octavian's triumph over Egypt, but otherwise, they were unharmed. They were raised by Octavia, Octavian's sister, and Antony's ex-wife, So that would have been some interesting family reunions. They seem to have been treated well, even if Alexander and Ptolemy apparently died in childhood. But Cleopatra Selene would have made her mother proud, as she was wed to a prince and eventually became the queen of Numidia. You should see me in the crowd. Cleopatra Selene would have children, so Cleopatra's blood still flowed through a few generations of royalty. And that is the life of Cleopatra. I will not say that this is an exhaustive look at her life, but I hope I accurately hit the highlights of it, especially in her affairs with the Romans, since that's what my pod is about. And speaking of accuracy, it's important to keep in mind that Cleopatra's story, especially from ancient Roman sources, may, probably, have been written with various degrees of bias against her because she was a woman, because she was foreign, and because she was labeled an enemy of Rome. Modern historians have to try to discern these biases and carve out the truth to the best of their ability. There's an argument to be made that Cleopatra is the most famous woman of the ancient world and is certainly one of the most famous women of all time. Two thousand years after her death, her characteristics and her life story have been portrayed and interpreted in many different ways. I feel like I somewhat commonly see Cleopatra characterized as a seductress who used her sexuality to influence men to get what she wanted. For example, there's a famous painting called Cleopatra and Caesar by Jean-Léon Jérôme that depicts Cleopatra's first meeting with Caesar. She stands unfurled from a rug in front of Caesar, topless. I've seen everything. You know, I've seen it all. Now, for anyone who thinks that Cleopatra only got to where she was by sleeping with men, that's a bad take. To White Knight for a second, I think it's a disservice to her memory. Cleopatra was a politician in a deeply patriarchal ancient world, and she used her brains and body to advance her goals. Her body, her choice. She wasn't Caesar's sugar baby, but she was a valuable political ally and lover to both Caesar and Mark Antony. I will also say that anything about Cleopatra's sexual proclivities are very likely not factual, but sensationalized, or made up, and quite possibly misogynistic. I take a lot of my thinking from Adrian Goldsworthy, who argues that Cleopatra only had two lovers in her life, Caesar and Antony. All her children were fathered by them, and while she was married to her younger brothers, it was out of necessity for royal legitimacy rather than attraction. Additionally, her brothers were her political rivals, and she killed probably both of them. Some parting thoughts on Cleopatra. There was no other woman like her in the death of the Roman Republic. And while she was a world apart from the Republic, she was an essential player in its death spiral. And just like Roman politicians made vicious decisions to maintain and expand their power, or just to survive, Cleopatra played that same game, and just as viciously. All in the game, yo. All in the game. <laughs> sure. Thank you for listening. This is the last episode I'm going to do focusing on women of the Roman world. Name a woman. Sorry. No, name a woman. Name a woman? Yes, go. Any? Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Is this is so hard. Name a woman. Um... I appreciate anyone who has been listening to me mansplain about historical women. There is something called mansplaining. Have you heard about this? We know what mansplaining, mansplaining is. Mansplaining is when a man will condescendingly explain something to a woman that she already knows. I will admit, I reuse some material from chapters 15 to 19 of the main series of DOTRR, especially when describing Antony's perspective since Cleopatra was very tied up with him at that point in time. That said, if this period interests you and you want to learn more about it, maybe you want to learn a little more about Octavian. You disgusting little pig. I encourage you to check it out. You can follow the show on Twitter at pod if you'd like to as well. Also, please rate the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts if you haven't. DOTRR still isn't going anywhere and will still be intermittently releasing episodes. In fact, there's a slate of new releases coming up. I have seen HBO's Rome once five years ago, and I think I've said this before, but I honestly don't really like the show that much. Uh, It is not golden age TV for me personally. I'm spoiled by other stuff. Anyways, I'm going to rewatch HBO Rome with some friends who've never seen it before, and we're going to review the show. Honestly, if you haven't seen HBO's Rome, it probably wouldn't be that entertaining for you, but you can get a coupon code to HBO Max with my link. But if you have seen HBO's Rome or want to watch it through with us, I'd love to know what you think of the show. You can tweet at the show at dotrrpod with thoughts on Twitter, or email the show at dotrrpod at gmail.com to share your thoughts. I might read them on air. Thank you for listening. With all that said, friends, Romans, countrymen, I hope you enjoyed the show.